Hey folks, this is Kevin. I am so excited about this Hispanic Live series we're doing this fall, and this is the third episode in the series. We're looking back at some of our favorite risk stories shared by Hispanic folks in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month. And we have a very special guest host for today's episode. Manola Matos is a longtime fan of Risk, but also an extremely accomplished podcast creator himself. Manolo's podcast, Cucubano, is a Spanish language show where Manolo sits down with folks who share true stories with him. So, Without further ado, here is Manolo Matos to take over the episode from here. Hey guys, this is Manolo. On today's episode, you will hear Nelson Lugo. She did things that I just can't explain. One of the stories is that she managed to get a junior congressman acquitted from embezzlement charges using a mixed powder spell. At least that's the way the story goes. That and more right after these messages. We'll be right back. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a Great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. Hello, folks. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they thought they never dare to share. I'm Manolo Matos, and I'm very excited to be here on the third episode of Hispanic Lives. In a little bit, we're going to hear stories from Nelson Lugo and Nestor Gomez. It's really exciting to be here because the stories are amazing, but I've been following Nestor Gomez for a long time, and I've listened to a lot of his stories, so it's going to be a great show. But first, we'll start with a story from Dioselin Gonzalez. Diosalin Gonzalez is originally from Venezuela, but she currently works as an independent consultant based in Washington State. And before we go with this story, I wanted to say that there's a trigger warning here. The story deals with abuse and also bullying. So take care of yourself when listening to this story. Uh, it's also a story about triumph in the end, which is uh, pretty exciting. In my case, the story was a little triggering because I had similar experiences to her. So. I had to say that before we hear her story. Here's Diosalin Gonzalez with a story we call Rebirth. 
Around 2010, when I still had Facebook, I get a notification that it was Cesar's birthday. Cesar is a friend from college, a really good guy. I write a message on his wall, and when scrolling down, I see that he also has a message from Carla. Carla is a former classmate of mine from high school. I realized that the two of them know each other. Holy crap, I got nauseous, and this feeling lasted for at least three days. Let me go back to 1986. I am 10 years old, and I am in fifth grade. I grew up in a small suburban town in Venezuela, and all my life I attended this very small Catholic school. So I knew all of my classmates since we were four years old. I was a very quiet and shy girl, an excellent student, and I didn't have a big group of friends, but it didn't matter. I was very happy being this under-the-radar lonely girl. Now my parents bought me a journal. It was all pink. The covers were padded, so it was very satisfying to touch. The pages were also all pink with hearts of all different sizes. I loved it, so I carry it with me all the time. I would put it in my backpack. Now, sometimes at home, I would have this outburst of anger and frustration, I don't know why. And I would start punching the walls and the closet. I didn't know it at that time, but this was because of my situation at home. I realized after years of therapy. At home, my father was molesting me and my mother was ignoring me. But at that time, without knowing the source of this anger, I directed it towards the nuns and the Catholic Church. I would write things in my journal like, fuck the nuns and the Catholic Church. The teacher is a puta, the teacher is a whore, and so on. One day in class, we're doing a group activity. My team finished early, and so we started chatting. I told them about the poetry collection. At the end of my journal, on the very last pages, I would copy poems that I found in the library. And I was also writing my own poems with teenager topics like the meaning of life, finding love. <laughs> so we got very excited about the journal. I took it out and we were looking at it. We were so into it that we didn't realize the teacher was approaching us. One moment we were all looking down, our heads all together in a circle, and the next moment, we're looking up at the teacher standing next to me with a journal in her hand. She didn't say anything. She just turned around, walked away, and put the journal on her desk. My chest started hurting. I was breathing really fast. Even my stomach was hurting. I was having a panic attack. Moments later, we are this time in, a, in another subject and doing an individual activity. I couldn't concentrate because I could see my journal on the desk. I could almost reach and grab it, but I wouldn't. So the teacher comes to her desk. She sits down, leans back on her chair and starts reading my journal. I started trembling, my hands were shaking, I couldn't 
hold the pen or even write. I don't remember what I was doing in the exercise. This woman was tall. She had hair to her shoulders. It was brown. She didn't dress very elegantly. Sometimes she would use a staple gun to staple her jeans when they were too long. Well, when she's reading the journal, I see her smiling. And I'm like, why? Is she laughing at me or is she smiling like sarcastically when adults tell children, hey, little kid, you are in so much trouble. Again, she doesn't say anything, just gets up and leaves the classroom with my journal. She left the door open, so I was able to peek and see her in the hallway, calling other teachers and nuns and passing my journal around. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but then at one point, teacher Elena says, Tenemos que expulsar a esta muchacha inmediatamente. We need to expel this girl immediately. Moments later then, a nun is calling my name and escorting me downstairs. It was a dark room. I remember one or two lights and they were dim. I remember seeing mostly the silhouettes of their faces. We sat around this long rectangular table and the trial begins. What do you have to say for yourself? We read everything. And I replied mostly with monosyllables. Yes, no, I don't know. They brought witnesses. One by one, they paraded the girls that I mentioned in my writings. And it was innocent things like, Andrea taught me this song. But they wouldn't tell the girls. They would ask them, Confiesa. Leímos todo lo que ustedes hicieron juntas en el diario. Confess. We know what you did together because it's in her diary. And the poor girls were just crying their hearts out and saying, I didn't do anything. By the way, I didn't cry. I think that's because I was dissociating. I realize now as an adult. I remember not feeling the pressure of my body on the chair or my arms on the table. And I guess I also had some sense of pride because I was telling myself, Dioseline, don't cry. Don't give them the satisfaction. The nun that was presiding the trial at one point asks me to stick out my tongue. And when I do, she goes, Ew, it is green, it is dirty. And this is because of the devil inside of you and all the sins that you've committed. Can you see? She asks the other teachers. And they go, oof, yeah, it's even putrid. And even to this day, I, I have almost an obsession. Almost an obsession about scraping my tongue when I brush my teeth. And I'm very sensitive about bad breath. At the end, they tell me, out of the goodness of our heart, we're not going to expel you, but you are suspended for three days. And here is a letter for your parents. They have to come meet us tomorrow. And we're keeping the diary. 
That night, I waited until almost bedtime to talk to my mom and give her the letter. She was shocked, but I just ran to bed. The next morning, I am standing, looking, staring at the front door. I remember then hearing the steps approaching and thinking, okay, I think they're back. They're coming back. Then I hear the jingling of keys. They're opening the door. And do I hear them laughing? That's weird. And they open the door and my parents enter. And yes, they actually relaxed and they're smiling. My dad was the one that talked to me. He kneeled down at my eye level and said, the only thing that you did wrong was bring your journal to school because only supplies belong there. Do you understand? Apart from that, you did nothing wrong. We asked the nuns whether you said anything rude or whether you behave in a bad way, but they said, no, she didn't. But look at her diary, look at everything she wrote. And we replied, no, this is her personal diary and nobody has the right to read it. He promised me that they didn't read it. He goes, yeah, you're suspended for three days, but don't worry, you're gonna be back and then everything will be normal. Here's your diary. And you see how abusers mess up with your mind. Here's this man who was making me feel terrible at home and scared. But sometimes in public, he would defend me and even make me feel safe. The first time I realized that things had changed was when I, after three days of suspension, go back to school and ask the boy sitting next to me, Luis, if I could borrow a pen or pencil or something like that. And he says, no. My mom told me not to talk to you or let you touch my things because you're a sinner and you're going to hell. So that's how I became the most famous sinner in the school. Some kids would even tell me, hey, the teacher told me not to hang out with you and not to talk to you because you're a sinner. Yes, and you're a bad influence. One day, we are in math class, and the teacher says, hey, find a partner to do this exercise. When I turn around, I froze. Who's gonna want to work with me? Nobody. But then I spotted this girl, Danny, and I think, yes, she might want to work with me. She's a very pretty girl with very long hair, dark brown, and she was very short like me and super cute. Also an excellent student, but also she kept to herself. So when I go and talk to her and ask, hey, can I work with you? She simply said, yes, bring your desk. And that meant the world to me, made me so warm in my heart. She didn't have to do it. And she didn't mention the suspension, the reputation, nothing. And you know what? We clicked. We immediately became best friends. She didn't judge me. Actually, I think of Danny as almost a mentor during those years. She was very strong and almost seemed like an adult. 
I think it's also because she was going through difficult things at home. Well, that's when the lesbian rumors started. You know, Catholics, homophobes, very conservative. For them, that's the ultimate insult. All the kids would yell at us, especially in recess. Hey, look at those lesbians. Don't touch them. It might be contagious. So, all the time, my social life consisted of hanging out with Danny. She didn't have to, because this all started with me, but she stayed my friend. One day in class, one of the girls stands up and says, Everybody, today is my birthday. Party at home. You are all invited. Danny and I decided to go, and when we get there together, it was awkward. We tried introducing ourselves to people and talking, but nobody wanted to talk to us. And so we ended up by ourselves in a corner. When we hear them from the other side of the room, Alejandro, one of the boys, yelling, Tremendo levante, Dani! And Dani immediately got so mad. She looked like she wanted to punch the wall and immediately. And I was confused because I didn't even know what that phrase meant. And she explained to me, that's a slang for romantic conquest. So you're supposed to be that person, the one that I'm seducing tonight. I think she would have fought with them. She would have get in a fight, but we just decided to leave. And instead of being angry, I felt profoundly sad because Alejandro was my crush since I was four years old. He broke my heart that night. A year later, in sixth grade, the teacher calls me aside and says, Dioselin, stop doing what you're doing in the bathroom with Danny, or I will make sure to expel you. And I go, what do you mean? And she says, don't pretend that you don't know what I'm talking about. You and Danny are masturbating each other in the bathroom. What happened was that the name calling and the bullying was so much that Danny and I looked for places to hide. At first, we would go to the chapel because nobody goes there, nobody prays. But the nuns realized that people were sneaking and started patrolling the halls. So instead, Danny and I would go to the girls' restroom and hang out by the sink. Whenever we would hear girls approaching and entering, we would run and lock ourselves in one of the stalls. We were naive and didn't realize that the girls could see our feet together, and that's when they started the rumors, and this all spread around school. This all continued through high school. I even tried talking to my mom once. I told her that I was feeling really bad. I was trying to tell her that I was depressed. I didn't know that word at a time as a teenager, but I was trying to tell her how much I was hurting inside from the bullying in school. And I asked her to transfer me to another school. Her reply was, Dioseling is not that bad. It's not really. Everybody goes through difficult things in school. 
this school where you're going is the best one in town. So I don't want to take you out of there. And that was it. Danny and I even also talked to the class counselor in eighth grade. The counselor is this professor that they assigned to classes to be the advisor and also to teach the Bible class. We told her everything about the lesbians, name calling, the bullying, everything. And we explicitly asked her for help. And she seemed worried. She said, oh, wow, this is bad. And I'm going to help you for sure. The next Bible study class, this teacher goes and asks everybody, get on groups of four to five peoples and do this, I think it was a reading of the Bible. Everybody in the classroom, they create all the teams. And Danny and I just stayed there by ourselves because of course, nobody wanted to work with us. The professor looks at us and says, hey, no, no kids addressing the whole class. Please work with Danny and Dioselin. So which team is going to take them and work with them? And it was just silence. Nobody said anything. And the professor then goes and says, oh, wow, this is so sad. This is so sad. Let's continue reading the verse in the Bible. And that was it. So Danny and I, we did what we were supposed to do. We went to adults and asked for help, and nobody did. In senior year, I had the highest GPA. So technically, I was the valedictorian. One day, the nun that is the director of the school enters the classroom and says, Hey everybody, I am so excited to announce who is going to give the student speech at your graduation. And that person is going to be Alexandra. They chose another girl and they completely ignored me. The nun didn't even look at me. By that time, the bullying wasn't really that much, but instead they treated me like I didn't exist. High school graduation was just regular one. Everybody taking photos with their favorite professors and nuns. I was just relieved that I didn't have to go back there. Now, university. First summer, they organized a three-day program for new students to get to know each other. They had activities and sharing and lunches. I was petrified to go because I was still scared of being around people my age. However, when I got there, people were nice, they talked to me, they accepted me, and it was strange to me enjoying time with people my age. I felt happy, but it was almost difficult to understand. The first day of class, I am walking to my classroom I have my backpack and I'm hunched over looking at the ground because that's how I survived in high school. But then I see new students saying hello to me. Good morning. How are you doing? That's when like I looked up, I remember from the ground to the sky and I had this serendipity moment. Of course, they don't know anything. 
do you know about the suspension, the reputation? I can reinvent myself. So during college years, I flourished. I had not only one friend, but a big group of friends. I even had my first boyfriend. And if anybody saw me holding hands and walking with a girl, nobody even cared. For college graduation, they allowed me to participate and asked for my feedback. That day, when they called my name, I rushed to the stage and I'm all nervous, shaking professor's hands. When one of them tells me, hey lady, turn around for your friends. And when I do, I see that all of them had stood up and were clapping for me. <laughs> that was wonderful. So college and high school were two separate worlds for me during many years. And that's why when in 2010, I saw that in Facebook, I was nauseous because they the two of them were colliding and things were just going to fall apart. But you know what? The world didn't explode. My college friends stayed my friends. I don't know if they learned about what happened in high school, but they're still my friends and accept me. At that time, also around those years, I started my lifelong journey in therapy to work on my traumas. And then one day I realized that I wasn't really reinventing myself in college. Instead, I was allowed for the first time to be myself. And if you're curious, Danny and I are still friends. A couple of years ago, we met in Bogota, Colombia, and we're walking in the streets, having fun together, remembering our great time that we had together. When Danny says, we should get a tattoo. And I loved the idea. We had the same tattoo in our arms. We went through a lot of difficult and traumatic events all those years. However, the one thing that came up from it that was wonderful is this friendship. 35 years of being friends with Danny. This is Risk, and we're hearing Me Fui by Reymar Perdomo in the background. And we just heard the story from Dioselin Gonzalez. Her Instagram is Dio Alejandra, and her Twitter is Dioselin. The story really touched me because I had an experience not as long as hers. I was in a private school, Catholic private school, when I was in fifth grade. And at the end of the semester, only six students remained because of uh, abuse. So uh, 
It looks like it's a common theme in Catholic schools. So I, I can really relate with the story. Now we have two more stories. Later, we'll hear one from Nestor de Bos Gomez, but before that, a story by Nelson Lugo. So my grandmother was a Santeras, which means that she practiced Santeria, which means that she was a Puerto Rican witch. And I mean that in the most respectful way possible. For those of you who don't know, Santeria is what's known as a syncretic religion. It combines the Yoruba faith of West Africa with the indigenous folklore of the Bariqua Indians of Puerto Rico. When the missionaries started their work, it then became fused with Catholicism. So as a result, my grandmother was a devout Catholic who attended Mass every single day of her life. She also cast spells, removed curses, prepared baths that cleansed your soul, talked to the dead, and saw your future. She also made the best pancakes I have ever had in my life. And she was a tiny woman. She was four foot 11, never spoke a word of English, but understood it perfectly. And I do not speak Spanish, but I understand it very well. And so the conversations between my grandmother and I were these really kind of belabored secret decoder ring kind of conversations where we would try to like figure out what each one is saying and then we would say something back and then they would try to figure out what we were saying. So yeah, it was an interesting, uh, <laughs> it was an interesting communicating with my grandmother. For anyone who knows me, it's unsurprising that I'm the skeptic of the family. And, and I have always been, have always been that way. Um, so even when I was a little boy, I never really believed anything that my grandmother did was real. She loved the fact that I'm a skeptic. I've never had a problem with it. She always felt that people should find their own way to the things that mean the most to them. Because I was kind of force-fed religion at an early age. I went to uh, Roman Catholic school for the first seven years of my educational life. And Even then, just knowing then that I just, I, I knew I didn't believe in any of it. But I was going through the motions because I thought that I was supposed to do. However, I'm also a professional magician. And that is my livelihood and have been doing that for a very, very long time. And my grandmother <laughs> always found it very interesting that for someone who didn't believe in magic, I sure practiced a lot of it. Now, I would argue that what I do isn't what she does, or at least what she purports to do. But from my grandmother's point of view, it's really about the metaphor. But she did things that I just can't explain. Uh, one of the stories is that she managed to get a junior congressman acquitted from embezzlement charges using a mixed powder spell. At least that's the way the story goes. Another story is that she didn't like her upstairs neighbor. Apparently, this woman was very loud and got very angry and belligerent anytime anyone asked her to keep it down. So my grandmother, using an incense and oil spell, managed to get her to move, apparently to another state. <laughs> Again, I mean, I don't know how much of that 
for me, I can really take to heart. But there is one time that she used her magic on me. Growing up, I've had asthma my entire life. Asthma is terrifying. The best analogy I think I can come up with is a fish out of water. If you take a fish out of a fish tank and just put it on a desk and watch it struggle for some kind of breath, that is the closest equivalent that I could possibly point to. Nothing you can do can get enough air into your lungs because your lungs are essentially filling with fluid. And it's kind of terrifying. I mean, especially when I was little and I didn't really understand what was going on with me. All I knew is that I couldn't breathe. And as a shy kid who read a lot of comic books and books and adventure stories, there are a lot of people who die from suffocation in Batman comic books. And, you know, the, the Joker decides to gas a room and everybody's suffocating. And that was what I was reading at nine years old. I love Batman. I mean, emotionally, I think I became quite cynical to it pretty young because I, I had gotten it so much and had been hospitalized so much that in my head, it's like, oh, oh, well, I guess here we go again. You know, here we go to the hospital and I have to breathe in medicine and stuff. Growing up, this was always, always a big deal. In fact, whenever little Nelson had even the rumor of an impending asthma attack, the general rule, the protocol, was to just rush me to the nearest emergency room or I could die. You know, this was before the advent of rescue inhalers, before those were pretty commonplace. I must have been 10 years old and I was staying with my grandmother and I got a very sudden and, and pretty severe asthma attack, but she didn't take me to the hospital. In fact, she basically broke every rule of the Little Nelson Lugo protocol and she took me by the hand and led me to this one room in her giant Bronx apartment that I was just never allowed to go into before. It's called her saint's room. The door opens and I am just hit with sensory overload. It's, it's just a cacophony of information. There's, it's a narrow room and at the end of it is just one window. And so that's where all the light is coming into. But every square inch of this room is covered with tables and shelves and all kinds of stuff. And every square inch of the tables and shelves are just covered with, covered with something sacred to her. There's rocks and crystals and beaded necklaces and rosaries and painted rocks and dead flowers and and like there are crosses everywhere in the room dying jesuses are everywhere in this room pictures of jesus are everywhere in this room in the corner there's about a dozen plastic smurf figurines for some odd reason and then uh, next to that is a large toy horse that went to my lone ranger action figure that had been missing for months and then next to that there was a large bust of a Native American man with this huge, real feather headdress. I think it was a genuine feather headdress. And smoked cigars were in ashtrays and then just piles of pennies and then just bottles of just oils and powders and just like, it, it was crazy. It was crazy. And there was just a rainbow of lit candles throughout the room. And then the air was had this heavy scent of wax and perfumed alcohol in it. And at this point, I'm wheezing now heavily and my breath is coming in short gasps and she hands me these bouquet of flowers to give to this four-foot handmade doll called Mama. 
and this doll had seashell earrings and was wearing a white scarf and a white dress with a white head wrapping and was made from the blackest material I've ever seen in my entire life with button eyes and a, and a red string smile. She starts grabbing powders and oils off the shelves and she starts grabbing silk scarves and she starts dousing the silk scarves with all these oils and powders and then she starts chanting this ancient whispered secret prayer that just has a whole lot of S's in it, you know, like, like, and then she starts rubbing my chest with these silk scarves all the while just chanting this secret prayer and I am freaking the fuck out now and I'm really scared and my breath is just coming really in short gasps and she sits me on the floor uh, and she places a white bowl by my feet and I'm kind of terrified now and uh, it feels like there's an elephant just sitting on my chest and it just it seems like a, a fight to get every molecule of air into my lungs and I'm sweating from the exertion and I'm starting to cry now and then out of nowhere there's now a live chicken in the room and now she's holding a really big knife and then she just holds up the chicken and she holds up the knife and then she just slits this chicken's throat and there's just so much blood there's blood just coming out of this tiny little fucking chicken and the chicken even didn't even make a sound and then and then I could breathe and I have no idea how she did that I, I really don't Now, to be clear, Nelson, the adult, science-loving skeptic, believes that the ritual, combined with the sensory overload that created a sort of hyper-emotional state, created what's known as a placebo effect. Um, my body rushed with adrenaline, and that allowed my lungs to function. It's also entirely possible that I was just too fucking terrified to have an asthma attack at that point. However, little Nelson, the scared little boy who couldn't breathe, he believes it could have been magic. So I guess that begs the question, does it really matter? And to be honest, I don't know. I'm just, I'm very grateful to be alive. And my grandmother passed away four years ago now. And I think about her a lot. Still, you know, I mean, when a lot of people think about magic and they think about, you know, wands and bunny rabbits and for better, or for worse, Harry Potter movies. But when I think about magic, I think about a four foot 11 soft spoken Puerto Rican witch whose pancakes I still miss very much. Our last story today is from Nestor Gomez. It was recorded during the lead up to the 2020 election as one of our risk live stream shows during the COVID lockdown that year. So you will hear Kevin and other storytellers from the show on the Zoom call as the audience. Now with a story we call Journey to the Polls, here's Nestor the Boss Gomez. When I was 15 years old, like any kid living in Guatemala and any other Latin American country, 
I was excited about the idea of turning 18 years old. But not only because in Guatemala at 18 years old, you can legally drive, smoke, and drink. Okay, well, I did want to smoke, drink, and drive. But also in Guatemala, you can vote as soon as you turn 18 years old. Now, back then, I used to be very shy because I had a speech impediment. I used to start it really badly. So I didn't have a voice. And the idea of being able to have a voice with my vote to participate in the political events in Guatemala and hopefully with my vote and my voice be able to help solve the civil war in Guatemala that had caused the death of thousands of people. I had made many people emigrate to the United States, including my parents, was intoxicating to me. I wanted to vote. I wanted to have a voice. Sadly, a few months after I turned 15 years old, my parents decided that my siblings and I should also emigrate to the United States and join them here in Chicago. And when I got to Chicago at first, I was excited when I learned that here in the United States, you can also vote at 18 years old. However, my siblings and I had come to this country undocumented. And contrary to what you hear on fake news or what you hear some people say, undocumented people do not vote. Undocumented people are not allowed to vote. So I remember thinking, not only do I stutter, but I also don't know the language of this country. And now because I am undocumented, even after I turn 18 years old, I will not be able to vote. Now, I really don't have a voice. When my mother heard about my concerns, she told me, mijo, son, don't worry. I already have a green card and I have applied for you and your siblings to become USA citizens. The only thing you have to do, she said, you have to remain single. Now, at first I couldn't understand what remaining single had to do with my immigration process. But my mother explained that by me getting married, especially to another undocumented person, the government will see that as they giving paper to two people instead of one person. And because I couldn't speak any English, the possibilities of me marrying somebody who was a citizen were very slim. So the best thing for me to do was to remain single. However, I was already going to high school. And being a Latino, half-blooded kid, even with my stuttering, I was already dating a girl in high school that just happened to be undocumented as well. And a couple of years later, I kind of got her pregnant. So we kind of had to get married. Now, my siblings followed my mother's advice, and they were able to arrange their documents. However, me, I got married, and then I got divorced a few years later, and then I met another woman, and I got married again, and then a few years later, I got divorced again. So I complicated and prolonged my immigration status and my, my trying to become a documented person. 
Although, when you think about it, getting married, getting divorced, getting married, and getting divorced again, it's kind of like the American way of life. But the government did not see it that way. It wasn't until I was almost 30 years old when Barack Obama was making his run to be president of the United States that I finally was able to get a green card. But I still couldn't vote. Having a green card is not the same thing as being a citizen. And having a green card does not permit you to vote. That privilege is only reserved for citizens. So I remember thinking, I no longer stutter. I am undocumented now that I have a green card. And I have learned to speak English with a very sexy Latino accent. <laughs> but I still cannot vote. I still do not have a voice. When Barack Obama was elected president, thousands of people congregated on Grand Park, Chicago, to hear his speech. Mm. Families gathered at restaurants and friends gathered at bars to celebrate. People were driving around honking and screaming, Jet Weekend! Jet Weekend! Jet Weekend! I was at home thinking, no, I can't. I cannot vote because I'm still not a citizen. And the process from having a green card to becoming a citizen is tedious, it's long. It requires paying a lot of money, filling up a lot of applications, taking a citizenship test. It takes a lot of time. So I still couldn't vote. But I promised myself that I was going to do everything in my power to be able to become a citizen as soon as possible so I could take part on this very important historic event of electing the first African-American president in the history of the United States. However, by the time Barack Obama started to run for a second time, I had already gotten lazy and complacent. And I was making excuses to myself. I don't have any money. It takes too long. Barack Obama is going to win with or without my help anyway. So I did not apply to become a USA citizen. Mm. It wasn't until the beginning of the end of Barack Obama's second term when the anti-immigration talks and the chance of build the wall, build the wall started to get really loud that I decided to do everything in my power and get my act together to become a citizen. But as I explained before, becoming a citizen from resident to citizen takes long, takes money, and it's the government that decides how long the process takes. So I could not become a citizen in time to vote for the 2016 election. I remember sitting at home, unable to take my eyes away from the TV screen, and unable to believe the results of the election. This was one of the most important elections of our time. And half of the population of the United States did not vote. I was so mad at myself because I couldn't vote and I had taken too long to apply to become a citizen. 
But I was also mad at the fact that a lot of people like me probably had the green card and they took too long to become citizens. And I was thinking how many people took too long like me or how many people were already citizens or were born citizens and they simply decide that they didn't want to go out and vote. Like I say, this was one of the most important elections of our time. And half of the population simply did not vote. Black people were lynched, were killed, suffered to earn the right to vote. Native Americans were not given the right to vote until 1950s. Women, only a few decades ago, were allowed to vote. There are still a lot of people on detention centers and living in poverty that are fighting right now for the right to vote. There should be no reason, no reason whatsoever those that are able to vote don't go out and vote. Unless, unless you're Republican. <laughs> In that case, you want to stay home and watch a movie or watch the game. If you got something else to do, by all means, feel free to stay home. In my case, I did not become a citizen until March 2018. After more than 30 years living in this country, I was finally able to become a USA citizen. And the first thing I did was to text my mom to give her the good news. And then I signed up to be a registered voter. I remember telling the person as I was signing up that I was really excited because now for the first time I was going to be able to vote on a presidential election. Um, you don't have to wait until presidential election, he said. There are plenty of elections for mayors, for Congress. There are a lot of elections that you could participate on. You don't have to wait until a presidential election. So now it was November 2018 and I was on my way to vote for the very first time in my life. I was no longer a 15-year-old kid dreaming of voting. Now I was a 40-year-old something guy on his way to vote for the very first time. I remember going into the place, grabbing my ballot, and looking at it for a long time, wanting to burst into tears. On my way out of the voting place, I had to control myself so I wouldn't start crying and I wouldn't start stuttering as I asked one of the people working there, do, do you have a tissue? He looked at me a little bit weird, so I had to explain myself. I'm sorry, but this is the very first time that I'm voting and I'm just really excited. Well, in that case, he said, you don't want to forget this. He say as he plays, and I, I bought a wristband on my wrist. I look at the wristband, and I had to get out of there running so I wouldn't start crying as I saw it. And as soon as I got out of the place, I took a picture of it, and I posted on Facebook, on Twitter, or Instagram, on WhatsApp, on MySpace, everywhere, <laughs> every single social media place. I posted the picture. And then 
I text my wife because, of course, I got married a third time. I mean, what can you do with this sexy Latino accent? <laughs> Bound to happen. <laughs> so I texted my wife the picture. And as soon as she saw it, she replied, congratulations, with a thumbs up, fist emoji, American flag emoji, you bought it emoji. And as soon as I got home, she asked me, so how long did it take? How do you feel? And I thought about that for a moment because the process of going to the boarding place and boarding had only taken a few minutes. But my wife knows that. But she also knows that the struggle that to be able to boat had taken me a lifetime. But since she knows that, I didn't explain that to her. It wasn't necessary. I just say, I feel great. I have a voice now. And now that I have a voice, I'm going to use the voice for the rest of my life. And this November, in spite of COVID, in spite of anything, I am going to vote by mail, in person, any way that I can, but I'm going to vote. And I'm going to join my voice to the voice of millions as we scream and we chant, yes, we can, yes, we can, yes, we can. Thank you. This is Risk, and this is Mon Laferte behind me now. And we just heard a story from Nestor de Bos Gomez. It's interesting that me being from Puerto Rico uh, sometimes don't appreciate the fact that we come to the States and we can vote immediately. And all the other immigrants that are coming into the country cannot vote, sometimes for years, like in his case. But before that, uh, Nelson's story made me uh, remember something that happened to me in Puerto Rico when I was a scuba diving instructor. And I took a tourist at some point on a scuba dive. And we could only do it at night because I was working during the day. So we did a night dive in San Juan in Puerto Rico. And on the way back from the dive, we saw this jar at the bottom of the ocean. And he went and grabbed it. And when I looked at it, it had blue, some kind of blue liquid in it. And uh, inside there was a doll full of pins. And I, I realized immediately that it was some Santeria, you know, work that somebody had thrown in the ocean. And I told them to just throw it on the, you know, throw it on the floor and just let it, let it be there, you know. And he was asking me what it was, you know, making signals of what it was. And I said, just, just leave it, you know. And when we got out, he asked me what it was. And I told him that it was a Santeria, you know, some kind of spell or something. And they, they use the ocean all the time to throw spells and stuff. And I told him uh, jokingly because... I don't believe in any of this, but, but I said, oh, I'm glad that you grabbed it with your right hand because otherwise you, the spell would be on you if you would have grabbed it with your left hand. And he freaked out. And uh, of course, I was just joking with him. I never told him that I was joking. So I bet he, he came back to the States thinking that, uh, that he just uh, had a close encounter with a Santeria uh, work in San Juan. I'm so grateful to the Risk Bunch. Let me host this episode today. 
stories are very important in Hispanic communities. And I think this series shows uh, my family, that's the number one thing they do. They just sit in the balcony or in the living room and just tell stories from the past. So it's pretty exciting to be here. So thank you guys for listening and thank Risk for allowing me to be here today. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Se ve más bonito Hagan un trencito Hagan un trencito De este lado y del otro Bailando la cumbia Se ve más bonito Que alguien me explique Lo que pasó Me confundí 